The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, innovation, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Now, here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, now heard in 100 countries around the world. So glad you could join us. So whoever you are and wherever you come from, this is the show that's going to help you become the best version of yourself as a leader. Whether you lead a group of three, 300 or 3,000. In each show, we hold space for deep, and purposeful conversations with the the most successful thought leaders, executives, experts, and influencers about how to unleash the greatest force on the planet, and that is love. Love that will transform our work cultures, create business impact, and actually generate profits. And I'm thrilled that you're here, and I hope that you will join the Love in Action movement so that we together can make the world a better place. My guest today is Todd Palmer, a popular executive coach, keynote speaker, a renowned thought leader, and author of the book, The Job Search Process, Find and Land a Great Job in Six Weeks or Less. And I love that Todd is here because as leaders, we all struggle with our own fears, self-doubts, and let's face it, guys, There's some of us right now listening who struggle with imposter syndrome. And Todd has made it his mission to help leaders at the highest levels get over these things to achieve their highest goals. And he's here today to share his story, what he's learned along the way, and his proven framework for helping business owners achieve success. Todd, I am jazzed that I get to talk to you today. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Oh, I'm just as jazzed to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start right off the bat with this. Do you believe in imposter syndrome? I not only believe in imposter syndrome, I'm someone who still deals with it on an occasional basis versus the daily basis. I had to deal with it in 2004, 2005, 2006. Imposter syndrome is is real. It manifests in shows up, at least in the experiences that I've had, in all parts of our lives, whether it's the entrepreneurship part, whether it's the parenting part, whether it's the significant other part. Imposter syndrome goes wherever we happen to be going as well. Yeah. And so we talked offline how this is kind of a good segue for your personal story. You have this amazing story of success. I'm going to set it up like this. You went from being a struggling entrepreneur And you told me with $600,000 in debt, I don't know anybody that has that kind of debt as a a business owner right off the bat. And yet you were able to make the the prestigious list, the Inc. 5000, not once, not twice, but an incredible six times. You know, and that's that's the list that really portrays the the, America's fastest growing company. So I'm really curious how you did it and what your journey was like And I'm sure imposter syndrome had a lot to do with it along the way. The the journey to the A5000 six times would not have happened had I not dealt with my imposter syndrome. 
So the, the metaphor I like to give to create the visual imagery for the listener is this. Imagine you're driving in a car and the driver of your car are, is your fears and self-doubts. That's your, my, that was my version of my imposter syndrome. And it was telling me that I wasn't enough, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't smart enough, regardless of whatever my external successes may have been. When I was able to switch seats from going from the passenger seat to the driver's seat of my business and of my life, then the imposter syndrome became much quieter. Now, I, I cannot describe enough the, the feeling of empowerment I felt when I took the wheel of my life again. The imposter syndrome was still there, sitting in the passenger seat. And at one point, the imposter syndrome, because it did want to protect me, it did want to save me at certain times. It's like, again, going back to how our brains work in our, our dinosaur brain, our reptilian brain is like, well, don't put your finger in the light socket. I think that's, for me, the, the origination of my imposter syndrome. Once it sat in the passenger seat, I now could recognize it and realize that it was still sitting there. But in order to get $600,000 out of debt, in order to have the courage to walk in one day and fire my entire company, to mm. start over, to engage the services of a coach at that time when I could not afford to pay him, to be able to receive the counsel and to be able to dig deep into the uncomfortableness that resided with inside of me in order to turn the business around, in order to have some success with the business, in order to pay off that debt eventually, in order to be the leader of my family. I was a single parent at the time. So not only was my business at risk, my house had guaranteed the line of credit. Wow. My kid was wondering, what the heck is my dad going to do? And, and it just all started with the transformative decision to deal with that imposter syndrome. Yeah, it's, a, it's an intriguing story because you kind of teach and coach these principles now that you lived through. And you said something, you say that growth happens only when we lean into the uncomfortable. I know these questions are, are going to get to the point where we, we kind of um, defeat that imposter syndrome. But tell us what you meant by we have to lean into the uncomfortable. What, what does that look like? Oh, because I didn't want to. I wanted to put my head in the sand. I wanted to pretend the debt didn't exist. I wanted to avoid those uncomfortable conversations. I had an underperforming staff. I didn't want to deal with it. So I just didn't deal with it. I was mounting of debt. I didn't want to deal with it. Those were both uncomfortable territories for me to lean into. And why was it uncomfortable? Because I was the CEO. Mm. I, I was the man who made those choices. I was the person who hired those people. I was the person who extended credit to clients that went bankrupt and stiffed me with their, their debt. I made those decisions. And in order for me to lean into the uncomfortable of having to have those conversations with the bank and with the employees, the first person I had to have the conversation with was myself. And to look deep within, to, 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 to do an inventory of how I got there was so incredibly painful. The flip side of it is it was transformative. I have a client of mine who... We said, Todd, had, had I known how uncomfortable it would be to work with you as my coach, I might not have never hired you, dot, dot, dot. I'm so glad I did because now my business is five times, 500% more profitable. My revenue year over year is growing by a rate of 70%. And now I love what I do because I now am much more comfortable with who I am. That's been kind of the complete journey of dealing with the imposter syndrome. Mm, okay, so you work with a lot of business owners, a lot of entrepreneurs. What would you say is the biggest myth 
of owning your own business and having to navigate those waters as a, as a business owner? I think a lot of the, the myth is perpetuated by media. I think a lot of the myth is perpetuated by things. You know, you, you watch a, an episode of Shark Tank and someone comes on and they give a pitch and they get, you know, a million dollars or something for their business. That's great. But then they don't show all the hard work that goes into it. I mean, businesses nowadays, I saw a stat the other day, have a, an over 80% failure rate. With marriage only having a 50% failure rate, the chances of being successful in marriage and, and not having a divorce is you know 30% greater than that of having a successful business. Only 4.3% of all companies ever reach a million dollars in revenue in the United States. Those data points are really important to recognize so that when I'm dealing with an entrepreneur who says, well, I'm great, my business is awful, go in and fix my team. The reality is, and the hardest part they have to recognize, just like I did, was in order to work on your business, in order to fix your marketing plan, in order to get more cash in the door, we have to deal with the, the people making the decisions. Mm. And that starts at the top of the food chain, starts with the CEO or the entrepreneur. Once we get them going in a different direction, you know, essentially what I say is, it's an inside-out process. To fix your business, you must work on yourself first, even if it's a day before you start working. Yeah, it's always an inside-out process. So and, and it, entrepreneurs get surprised by that. Yeah. And so if, you're, if you have to work on yourself first, what usually rises to the top as you know, the one or two things that you find, okay, this is what's getting in the way of growing your business? When you, when you talk about the inside-out approach, what's, yeah. what rises to the top first? That, you know, no, that's a, these are that's awesome. a great question. I think typically first what happens is there's that aha moment, that light bulb moment, that, that self-awareness that maybe they didn't have before I started working with them. Because you'll, I will often hear that the, it's the marketplace, it's my employees, it's this, it's that. And they have an expectation of what success looks like, an expectation of what the marketplace wants, an expectation of why people want to work for them. And we pivot them into focusing on what is your intention? What is your why? What, you know, I worked with Simon Sinek 12 years ago and he helped me figure out what my why is. My why is two words. It is improve lives. Now, how do I improve lives? I do it by, by talking to somebody in the store at the grocery store. I mean, I talk to entrepreneurs. I speak on podcasts. I speak from stage. I work with clients. Because at the end of the day, why am I doing, why do I want to improve lives? Because I want to leave a legacy. I, I realize that we're not here forever. And, why, and how did I get there is I had to anchor in deeply, why am I doing all this? Why am I suffering? Why am I, why did I, start a company. Well, I started a company because I wanted to prove something to somebody, either myself or somebody else, on how to do it. And once I did that, well, that was okay, but it didn't made the ink list. That was good, but I didn't really get the enriching internal experience with external things like awards and lists. So once I figured out what am I, why did I mayor, what is my purpose and passion, improve lives, why do I want to do that? It is it, to leave a legacy on this planet because we're not here forever. Then I got such momentum, not only personally and professionally, and now I teach that to clients, and it is so exciting because at the end of the day, it's the people who run the company, it's the people who make the decisions about cash strategy and execution, and in staff, if we can work with the people first, inside out, then it, it, it's incredible what they can accomplish. Mm. Okay, so we're probably going to get into, because a lot of what you're saying requires you know, self-awareness requires uh, the ability to get deep into yourself. That means that you have to be authentic um, with where you are, where you want to be. 
there is a level of transparency and vulnerability that not everyone is naturally wired. Talk through us about that. Is that, I mean, are, that, that's really hard. I don't know oh, if you it's so with your hard. clients to figure out, but. It is incredibly hard. It's for the clients that give me pushback and I'll say, well, why are you doing this? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm working this hard to, to feed my family. I'm working this hard to improve my community. Those are great ambitious things, but the reality, once you've peeled down all the layers, is you're doing it for you. You're starting, you typically, you start your business to prove something to yourself or someone else, or you have a great idea and you're do, there's, it's usually self-directed. What I often say to my clients, that's why I'm so excited to be on your show today is what, how do you love yourself? How do you take care of yourself? Because the reality is just like the, the demonstration of the, the diagram on an airplane is you put the oxygen mask on yourself first, then you can take care of others. You can't, like we talked about it a minute ago, you can't take care of your business if you don't take care of Marcel. Yeah. Okay. So I love this that you said, how do you love yourself? So let's work with that. You're sitting down with a coaching client. What would you tell them how to love themselves better? What would you say? Well, you know, the, I can't really say anything until I approach it with massive curiosity. Hmm. And I lean into the uncomfortable of asking really on the surface, simple, basic questions. And I take them essentially down the ladder of why they're doing what they do. And it comes down to them recognizing and acknowledging whether it's something from childhood, whether it's something from a, a deeper, 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 vulnerable place. I had a leader one time in a, you know, it was our very, it was our second day with his entire leadership team. It's a, he was a lawyer of all things. So the, you know, the last thing typically lawyers are going to show up are going to be transparent, vulnerable, and authentic. And we're 45 minutes to an hour into the conversation. I said, well, why do you, why do you want this so bad that you're essentially willing to, to sacrifice everything? It got super quiet. And part of leading into the uncomfortable is letting it be still. And someone tried to jump in and save him. They wanted to rescue him because they, they were all feeling uncomfortable. I said, shh, shh, wait, wait. He goes, I grew up poor. I grew up with, no, and he started to get very emotional in the moment. And I never want to be there again. And I want to take care of all of you who take care of me and allow this practice to thrive. And I want your families to be able to. And he just started talking about his areas of abundance. That transformative conversation of him leaning into those uncomfortable moments, him stating his truth, it was something he owned, turned that business on its ear. Mm. That's amazing because you, you, you wrote a blog that uh, really applies to this. And it, you, it's, it's called the storytelling. Storytelling, you say, is the new business currency. What impact does storytelling have? And I think when you already answered the question, that that was really an impactful story for that, that person to come out and say, hey, this is this was my background. Well, it's it's so interesting. You know, well, when people will will meet me or they'll hear their story about getting $600,000 into debt and then digging out of it and making an ink 5,000 six times, they'll often um, want to hear that story. And that's, that's a fine story to tell, and I have no problem telling it. But what I find is it's so much more powerful is to tell the stories of others and to tell the stories of other people's success. Because that's the, you know, if you're in any kind of business situation, you know, I'm going to hire somebody to come in and do something for me, whether it's build a website or add an addition onto the house or whatever, I'm going to hire somebody. If they can, instead of telling me how great you are and how competent you are and how credentialed you are, 
tell me the story of how your work has impacted the lives of other people and the enjoyment, the enrichment, the, the satisfaction. I have a, my favorite story to tell is that of a client of mine. He was very reluctant to work with me. He had some really dysfunctional situations going on in his company to the point of where he let two of his key leaders go within 90 days of engaging me. And it was so painful for him. And I challenged him to lean into those uncomfortable moments. And once he did, his business took off like a rocket. He, he added 5X profitability to every transaction he made. And his favorite thing today is like, now I love what I do because I'm anchored in how I do that. And I tell his story in an elongated format so that people, people will resonate with the stories they hear. People will self-identify themselves in the arc of that story. We all, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing the movie Rocky. You know, I'm glad he won at the end of, of, of the Rocky, was it three, where he beat Clubber Lang. I was so excited as a kid. But the struggles of Rocky one, the struggles of Rocky, and his hero's journey was what, what captures us. So much of going back to the people think the myth about entrepreneurship, people will often think it's super easy because we live in a social media world where we only share the greatest things that happen to us or the worst, worst, worst case scenarios of things where 95% of life is in the middle and it's in that struggle and in that journey. Mm. Well, we never think about storytelling as an actual strategy for, for success. Uh, so I'm fascinated by that. And I've, I've interviewed other, other guests that talk about the impact of storytelling. But again, we're going back to authenticity and transparency and vulnerability. It's, well, so to that point, I'm now, the worst day of my life was September 6th, September 9th, 2006. It's the day I wrapped my brain around how, bad, how much debt I was in. I made the decision to fire my staff for a lot of different reasons. And I literally, talk about authentic, transparent, and vulnerable, I literally sat down behind my office and cried. Mm. And it's the, truly the worst business day of my life. Fast forward to today, now the worst day of my life, my mess has become my message. And in the story of t- talking about turning the business around, I've now helped other people through the coaching experience and through the speaking experience. So now I have their stories. So now I've gone from the worst day of my life has become my mess is my message to now collecting stories of other people's journeys of success. And I live an abundant life now through the power of storytelling. Amazing. Todd, another strategy for success in a business is something that I talk about often, and and that is creating a culture of psychological safety. This is not on most business owners' radar, but you believe it really matters. So let's start with defining what what does it mean? What does that mean? And why does it matter for business? Well, not only do I define it and, and people like you share it, the, the, the biggest litmus test for me is Google espouses it. It's part of the Google culture. If you're the, if you're the marketplace leader like Google is and your job, you believe your number one differentiator to the battle for talent is your psychological safety. I've got to pay attention. It's that crystal clear. And, and when Google talks about how they create an atmosphere where employees can share ideas, where there, there's no fear, fear of, of intimidation for challenging status quo, and, and they create a space where the collective good is enhanced by everyone versus the, the old autocratic way of doing things or the top-down way of doing things or fear and intimidation. If you remove all of those things from the employee's 
process, it helps you win the battle for talent. I mean, there are 7 million jobs open every single day in the United States. Employees are in the driver's seat. It's a candidate-driven market. If you can provide an environment of psychological safety to attract the best talent, at the end of the day, talent trumps everything, regardless of whether you're, you're a construction company or a Google or a, a manufacturer of something. If you have the best talent going in the right direction because they feel cared for, they feel heard, they feel validated, and they feel rewarded to grow that organization as a collective team, it gives you the power of many versus the typical way when I would do things a long time ago. I'm a rugged individualist. I'm the entrepreneur. I'm going to climb Mount Everest without oxygen, and I'm going to make the top come hell or high water versus, wow, it's a whole lot easier if there's a tribe of us going up there in a methodical, caring, loving way. Yeah. Let's expand on fear. Uh, we have this tradition here where we talk about fear and what we believe the opposite of fear is, which is love. Why do you think fear is still so prevalent in how businesses are managed rather than the principles of love and care? Because the evidence is already out there. It's so overwhelming. Just, uh, I mean, I, I got books stacked up that talk about um, you know, the, the effects of love and care and inclusion and respect and empathy and kindness, et cetera, et cetera, that says all those things lead to high performance and business results. What's going on here with fear? I mean, we're, it's 2020. Why is fear still the way to manage? That, that, is such a, that is such a powerful question. And it's so much, I think it's been ingrained in us over time. I mean, wherever we go, there we are. We yeah. bring our baggage from childhood, our baggage from relationships, and we spend more time in an hour basis with our coworkers than we do with our families. And wherever we go, we're, I'm going to bring my imposter syndrome. I'm going to bring my little itty-bitty shitty committee in my head telling me how I'm not this, how I'm not that, and does that tie back into my, my eighth-grade basketball coach? Does that tie back into... My teacher in second grade who said I couldn't do mathematics this is a tie back into my parents who did the best they could with the skill sets they have. A, you know, parents in the 60s and 70s had a very different skill set, hopefully, than parents nowadays. Um, I was, I guess, the best way I can answer that question is I was so blessed to spend three days teaching entrepreneurship in a maximum security prison. Whoa. And the people there said two things that I thought I was going to go in and I would be a, a, a great teacher of them. They taught me more than I gave them. And they gave me two pieces that I'll never forget. I need to be seen and I need to be heard. When we see another, we hear another, we validate them, they become known, they become a whole person, then the need for fear and intimidation reduces. And it was so powerful because we're in a maximum security prison, the hardened criminals, murderers, etc., and I thought the program would only be for people who are rec- going to be recently or uh, upcoming released. I was wrong. Their biggest area that they wanted to go after were the lifers mm. because they controlled the prison population, which is managed by fear, which is managed by intimidation. They said, if we can convert those people into a more loving mindset and a more abundance mindset, we're going to change all these people. Their program blew me away from a, just one data point. No, I have no problem. The program's called Hustle 2.0. Any listeners, go check it out. There was the average recidivision rate of someone who didn't go through their program, who was just released back into the streets, and their chances of returning to prison were about 78%. If you went through the Hustle 2.0 program, 
I believe the number was 8%. That's how impactful it goes from being fear and intimidation to being acceptance and love and how that works. So if it can work in prison, it can work in our businesses, it can work in our families, but it's how we're hardwired that, that needs to be reprogrammed. That's my opinion. Yeah. Wow. Do you have any suggestions of how do we reprogram that since, we, since it's hardwired? Is there a first step on how do we switch from fear to love? Personally, as well as organizationally in your culture, is there a first step? You know, it, for me, in all candor, it starts with self-work. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone said to me the other day, why should I hire you as my coach? And I said, well, I drink the Kool-Aid. I still have a coach. I use a neuroscientist out of San Diego, California to help me continually work on my thought processes because the work is never done. You know, so, so if we want to rewire ourselves, it, we're not just going to go to Tony Robbins and walk away, but you know, we're going to be amped and jacked and full of adrenaline and we're going to go change the world. And it's, it's, it's the discipline of a methodical process. It's the discipline of a commitment to change. And it's that re repeat and reinforcement to know that all we're going to do is trade problems. When I was $600,000 in debt, that's a pretty measurable problem. So I get out of debt, I'm making more money, then what do I have? Huh, I have to pay more taxes. That's a different problem. If we're, we're always going to be swapping problems. We have the mythology sometimes that we're going to live a problem-free life. It doesn't work. We want our, you know, the problem is our kids are doing poor in school. All of a sudden, the kids are doing great in school because we've worked with them. We've shifted their mindset. We've gotten them on the right track with things. We, they've redefined success. They have the intention of doing well, not the expectation of only getting an A. Great. Now Junior's doing awesome. Well, now he wants to go to Georgetown. Now we have a new problem. Someone's got to pay for that. We're always swapping problems. The goal is how do we accelerate and elevate our problems into a different place? And I think a lot of that comes through the ability to have self-care, the discipline to recognize and realize this is, an, this is a journey, not a sprint, and we have to continually work at it. Mm -hmm. Let me go back real quick to imposter syndrome. Would you say, Todd, that imposter syndrome lends to leaders putting on a mask that is not, not really who they really are at the core of their being? The mask, is, the mask says, I need to lead through fear and intimidation. Uh, where deep down inside, they know that they wouldn't treat their kids the same way, right? Through fear and intimidation, but they walk in through, through the walls uh, between nine and five and they're doing that to their employees. So I, is it fair to say that imposter syndrome, basically it's, it's wearing false masks. When you said one mask, I was going to say, no, it's several masks depending mm. upon who you're in front of. And why, it's, it, it's so much more um, programmed into us to not show up authentically, to not show up vulnerably, to not show up, in a transparent way. Yeah. And, and people pick up on this uh, on a cellular level, I believe. And if we're able to take off the masks and be seen and be real, just like I learned from the people in the, in the incarcerated environment, it's amazing how much more people want to help you. Mm. People want to, to go and be, we can, we can lead by telling somebody what to do, fear and intimidation. We can sell them an idea which at times is great, but also can be um, you know, a little bit manipulative. Or we can simply collaborate with them, get the best ideas in their like, room. For example, I always have my leaders speak last in, in more rooms because if, if you hear all the great ideas from all the other people, they all feel heard, at the end of the day, if someone's got a better idea than you had when you walked in, 
You just say, yeah, John, your idea is awesome. We're just going to go the way you want to. And you never even have to divulge that maybe your idea was the worst idea, God forbid. And that such a, an amount of self-acceptance required to take off your masks. I have, a, I have a client, they have gone through a 12-step program and they, they show up with 100% honesty in everything they do because it's the honesty that keeps them sober. Mm. And when they take that honesty into their business, they, people always know where they stand and they always say that they're a work in progress. And it's that, it's that level of acceptance they have in themselves that they're always a work in progress that allows that acceptance to come out into their teams. So there's so much that can be gleaned by taking your masks off, but it's scary to be seen. Someone may reject me. Someone may not like me. It, it's, you know, it, it's like the first date syndrome. It, 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 if I just show up as my best self, well, okay, three years into it, yeah, let's see. Um, you know, I snore. Uh, you know, I don't clean up after myself. But gee, the first time I came to your house, everything was immaculate. Well, I wanted to impress you. Let's be a little more real and maybe a little less false versus you know, what we've got going on nowadays. Yeah, it's hard to take off that mask because we're afraid that uh, our employees or those entrusted under our care, they're going to lose respect for us. And if we you know, switch from fear and intimidation to love, care, and kindness, and I think that's why the mask stays on. Well, it's interesting because I know when I was going through my worst times and I would isolate and I would not participate and I would, I would go into my cave to, for self-protective reasons. My staff was very well aware of my behavior. <laughs> it's like the emperor has no clothes. There's such value in those old fables. They know we're not fooling them. We're only fooling ourselves. And so once that mask comes off, we're more authentically seen by them. Sometimes the hardest part, though, is to authentically see ourselves. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about you, the person of Todd Palmer. Who are your role models? Oh, I've been so lucky and so tr truly, truly blessed. Um, you know, I think when I think of my role models, I, I think of people like my older brother, who was, uh, um, you know, my, my father passed away when I was only five years old. So my brother was 12 years older than me. And he became that de facto role model for me. And He's a, he's a man of, of great integrity, um, incredibly high business acumen, and he's constantly striving to become better. Those are great things to embody. Um, I've been so fortunate to be part of entrepreneur organizations where I've got a tribe of people, and I can think of like my forum. I've got seven guys right there who, who are all role models for me in different ways, whether it's parenting whether it's business, whether it's personal growth and personal development change. And I think really my favorite current role model is my coach. He's a medical doctor, specializes in neuroscience. And every time I talk to him, every time there's a new problem, he's always been, well, you know, I just read this new article. I just did this new thing. I just, come on out here, come out to San Diego, we'll put your brain under a, an MRI. Let's talk about how it fires so you can become better. He's constantly challenging me he does two things. He challenges me to be, grow into a better human being, but he also validates and recognizes the challenges and struggles we all have. So that combination of those people in my life is not just one person. Mm. And it's not a celebrity and it's not an athlete. These are real people. Todd, if you were to have dinner with anyone, past or present, dead or alive, um, who would that be? You know, I would want to have dinner with, of all people, Paul McCartney. 
um, because I find him to be still so grounded in his, in his communications for somebody who's a beetle. I mean, he literally can't go anywhere in the world to the most remote village in India to New York City and not be recognized. Yeah. And he still carries himself with class and he carries himself with humility. And he is, has a certain still amount of accessibility. And I think those traits of being so real and, and authentic in who he is, is admirable. And I just, I love anybody who can show up and be real and authentic in as much, as many parts of their lives as possible. And I think Paul does that. Yeah. And for those kids listening that don't know who the Beatles are, they're arguably the best rock and roll band that ever existed. So <laughs> Todd, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Oh gosh, I think the first piece of advice that I would give my 20-year-old self, and I still struggle with this at you know 50 years old now, is you're enough. You're you're so much of being an entrepreneur for me was if the business was successful, Todd was successful. If the business was not doing well, well, then Todd's a failure. And to work through that over several years was a big challenge. And the reality is the only person talking to me that way was me and the and to recognize that my relationship with myself allows me to show up better for everybody else mm. and we bring it home with two final questions todd personally what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know you know i, I i'm working on my second book right now and it's on it's on authentic leadership and the journey I'm going through and the people I'm interviewing and the people I'm connecting with, it tugs at my heart that we are all more alike than we are different. We all struggle with certain things, whether it's a big issue or a small issue in the eyes of the world. And the biggest thing that really just I continue to, to drive this thing home, the real differentiator in life is people. It's the people who are in your tribe at home, the people in your tribe at your your clubs or your organizations or your groups or your, your staff, the better the people are in your life, the better you show up for other people, that type of, you know, we talked about the storytelling being a currency, that type of authentic currency can pay immense dividends, whether it's a nine-year-old or whether it's the CEO of a company. We're all people at the end of the day. Mm, I love it. And you get to close this interview with one final key takeaway, whatever that is for you. What, what's one thing we can absolutely walk away with that's going to make a difference in our lives? For me, I, I want to start at the beginning. The conversation around imposter syndrome and to recognize that as a leader of an organization, I had it. As leader of a family, I had it. Talking to kids, kids have imposter syndrome. CEOs have imposter syndrome. And the more we can get the message out there, I'm actually going to be working, I found a professor on the East Coast. She's writing books about imposter syndrome and she wants to collaborate around imposter syndrome for entrepreneurship. It's so real. We've got to talk about these things because if we don't deal with our internal fears and self-doubts, we will, like I did, potentially derail our business derail our families, slip into things such as abusive relationships, drugs and alcohol. The imposter syndrome cloak is everywhere. I just hope people will be able to challenge themselves to look within before blaming the rest of the world for their challenges. Mm. And Todd, I just want to acknowledge you that that's not lip service. You lived through it and you embody those principles 
And I so appreciate your thoughts and your ideas and your strategies today. Thanks for joining us. If people want to connect with you, where do they go for that? You know, the best place to reach me is on my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com, or I have a Facebook page for Extraordinary Advisors, Todd Palmer, number two on Instagram. I love connecting with the people who listen to these shows. And anybody who mentions that they have heard me on your program today, I'm happy to give them 30 minutes of my time for free. We can talk about anything. We can talk about imposter syndrome. We can talk about how to make money. We can talk about all the different bells and whistles of life. But, and what it is, is it's a reward for me to go to my why of being here, which is improving lives. Thanks again, Todd. Appreciate it. You know, for a guy who went from being $600,000 in debt to making the Inc. 5,000 six times, Todd is the first to tell you, you don't get there by faking it till you make it. He addressed his fears, self-doubts, and he didn't fall for that imposter syndrome so many of us struggle with. Todd's formula for success was to ditch the comfort zone. It's growing yourself and your business through authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. And now he teaches those principles to entrepreneurs and leaders all over. Thanks for joining us today, Love and Action Nation. And hey, listen, if this episode resonated with you, you might want to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, because these are the kind of conversations we hold every week. Next week is no different. I'm going to sit down with Ankur Gopal, founder and CEO of Interapt, who has an amazing story to share. Until then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. The choice is yours. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, Let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.